Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. With your host, Rob Snow White. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Snow White. This is being produced by Jason Reef of Freestone Media. This is Series 2, Episode 49, Captain Joe D. This is all about the Delaware River system, something I've read about in the past but didn't know much about. Got a pretty good understanding after listening to this with Joe. I think we're going to have to do a second podcast on his saltwater experience. But in the meantime, sit back and wait for the sound of me dropping my jaw when he explains some of the crazy shenanigans that the fish will do up there. This podcast is being brought to you by Ayobayo USA. If you need some local biltong, don't hesitate to go to your local Whole Foods and ask, will you carry Ayobayo? Because the ones in the D.C. metro area do. That website for Ayobayo is A-Y-O-B-A-Y-O.com. Your Your source for locally made Biltong, which is a classic South African dried meat. He also has sausages and dried meat sticks. So please visit those websites. Visit Joe's website. He's checking in from a McDonald's parking lot. So stay tuned for some background noises from people going in and out. And wait to find out if someone walks up to him. And just wait to see if someone walks up to him and thinks he's a loiterer. So stay tuned. This is Delaware River System 101 with Captain Joe D. Let's dive right in. All right. So this podcast, we have Captain Joe. How do you pronounce your last name for those who might have an issue reading? Demaldaris. Demaldaris. That's why right. it's just usually just Joe D. I mean, with my last name, no one even believes me that my name's Snow White. So I have to take out my driver's license like six days a week. <laughs> so where are you right now? 
Right now, I am glomming on a free Wi-Fi at McDonald's. Okay. Okay. That works. Did you get a cup of coffee or some fries? I have. I just got a cup of coffee and sitting in the AC in my truck. Okay. All right. Sounds good. So um, if people are going to be listening on their phones or their computers, where can they follow you on social media as we go along? Okay. Um, well, my name, Joe DeMalderis, on Facebook. My website is flyfishthedelaware.com. All right. Okay. And where did you grow up? How'd you get into all of this? How to get into all this? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, in the neighborhood of Marine Park, kind of right on, right off Jamaica Bay. And I spent my first 17 years there. And uh, my grandfather had retired when I was about three years old. And took me virtually every single day. It wasn't probably pouring out the bay and we fish off the piers and bulkheads and um that's what got me into fishing i was also very fortunate my grandparents had a a little summer cottage and uh i spent all my summers there and that was you know trout streams and wild trout streams and stock trout streams and you know some ponds and lakes right nearby too sounds a lot very similar to how i grew up my grandparents one was on the ocean florida one was inland so i could have bass in the morning and Salt water in the afternoon. It's a pretty yeah. cool way to grow up. That's good. That's good. Hey, Rob, yeah. real quick. Is it, are you recording when you call back? The, the little lady didn't come on. I hear it now. Yeah, she said it on my end. Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. So uh, when did fly fishing come into play? Fly fishing came into play. Um, I, I talked my mother into driving me to this one uh, stream nearby my grandparents' cottage all the time. And I would go there with worms and spinners and salmon eggs and whatever else I thought trout might bite. And I'd see fish rising and I'd cast my junk at them and nothing had happened. And two old guys fished there often. And I'd always see them catch fish with fly rods. So, I don't know, I was probably about 13 years old, 12 years old, something like that. And uh, talked my mother into buying me a fly rod and reel. So... Um, and I had a little spin pack of flies, like bumblebees and things like that. And, and I showed up at this stream and the two old guys thought they, they'd see me all the time. I think they would get annoyed at me, but they were polite enough not to ever say anything to me because they'd be fishing and I'd be flopping spinners and worms and stuff at the fish that were rising. And when they saw me show up at a fly rod, they thought that was kind of cute, I think. And they kind of pulled me aside and just started telling me stuff and uh awesome. my, yeah i got my first fish on a fly and i was hooked ever since so for for mentors growing up would you say it's some of those old timer guys took that took you under their wing yeah those guys and then uh when i was in my early 20s i was uh, i became uh friends with a, a a guy who lived not too far from me and his father was uh, an outdoor writer and this guy ended up in Montana. He ended up moving to Montana. We said great friends. He opened a fly shop out there. Unfortunately, he died too young. But he he really taught me a lot too. Um, you know, took took me under his wing really and taught me a lot of stuff. And then really it was just glomming every 
thing I can get my hands on. Every book, you know, magazines, you know, just constantly reading. But mostly it was just trial and error in the end, you know, just, <laughs> just kind of making the mistakes and being, uh, I guess, I don't know, thick-headed enough. I wasn't going to give up. <laughs> you know? People nowadays, I don't think they know how good they have it with the internet and all the TV shows and print media and podcasts. I mean, I had just the black and white books from the 50s at the library when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. That's that's what it was. It was, you know, it was all the old books and, uh, you know, magazines, pure fly fishing magazines then. They, they may have existed, but I didn't know what they were. So I would get you know, Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and Sports of Field and all those magazines and um, hope that month there'd be a fly fishing article in them. And, you know, often there were. And, you know, just try to learn what I could um, looking at that. And then I remember my uncle bought me McLean's Fly Fishing and, or Fishing Encyclopedia. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a big, giant book. It weighs about 30 pounds. Um, and that had a lot in it um, on fly fishing, you know, all about line weights and tapers and rods and fast action and slow action and reels and you know leaders and tippet and you know that that really helped me a lot that little reference book or big reference book there. all right so when did you make the jump from a recreational fisherman to doing it to earn a, a you know a paycheck to earn a pay well i, I guided part-time on and off uh actually did a little bit of charter boat mating in, in uh, high school and then um, was in, in another business prior, which wasn't really a fun business, but it paid the bills. And then just one day I decided, uh, you know, w w all I ever did was go fishing all the time. You know, I, I, owning a business gave me the freedom to not show up and go fishing more than I would actually go to work. So <laughs> one day I just decided... I'm just going fishing for the rest of my life. And that was that. So it's a good choice 20, to make. Yeah, it was about 23 years ago. And then when I, I don't really see we formally met, but up, there was an Orvis guide rendezvous in Santa Nona years ago. It was really cold and raining. Mm -hmm. It was maybe in like March. And I think that year you were the Orvis guide of the year. Um, yeah, well, that was 2010. Um, and that year I went to the rendezvous in Wyoming. Um, and I probably went to Sandinona too, because it's kind of close for me. Um, it was, was not close for me, I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, Sandinona is about 90 minutes for me to get there, so it wasn't that big a deal. Because um, I, I remember going to a couple of them there when they had them there. And I just don't remember if I went that year or not to that one. But I do remember being there one year where it was very miserable. I remember that. It was rainy and cold and windy. Yeah. All right. So what I want to do, the meat and, and potatoes of this podcast, I want to just learn all about the Delaware. I know there's a lot of people, too. Client Fred, he said, uh, I must have read his mind when uh, I told him I was having you on because he wants to know as much as he can. Um, so let's dive right in and, and talk sure. about the Delaware. So if you could tell us. Like, so, so where are the headwaters and, and where does it empty? The Delaware is a tailwater. So it's, it's two rivers, the east branch of the Delaware and the west branch of the Delaware. And 
they join together in Hancock, New York, and form the main Delaware River. And that goes all the way down past Philadelphia, down into Delaware Bay. So it's about 325 miles before it hits the ocean. And we're only talking about the very top part. So the West Branch is 15 miles long, roughly, and the East Branch is roughly 30 miles. And then Main River tailwater seasonally will go anything from 30 miles down to two or three miles. Um, it just depends on how hot a summer it is. And um, but you know you always have the 15 miles of the West Branch and the very top of the East Branch. The East Branch is long and wide. It, it gets wide as it comes down. The Beaverkill joins it. That dumps a lot of warm water into it. The river widens. And that lower stretch, which is about half the river, gets kind of warm. So if you stay up above the beaver kill, most of the time that water's cold all season. Um, when it gets real hot, that'll shrink down to maybe six miles of river that's fishable. Um, you know, we're safe. We're not going to hurt the fish. And um, so it just depends on the time of year. You know, sometimes we have 80, 85 miles of river. Sometimes we have 20 miles of river. So when it's shortened like that, does it get more crowded? Yes and no. Um, it gets more crowded in places. You know, it's it's the places either it's easy access or it's kind of no named pools. You know, everybody just kind of gravitates to. So you'll you'll have you know areas of the river where you know you'll have fifteen people in sight, and you have other areas of the river where you don't see anybody in any direction. You know. Like this weekend was a great example. You know, it was hot. Um, the main stem, is, you know, you couldn't fish that. It was too too warm. Um, the upper East Branch is really low water right now, and it's really, really, really challenging for most people. It's low and slow and crystal clear. It's so, crazy dry down here in D.C. Like our river is just, it's dropping. Mm -hmm. Plants are all wilting everywhere. Yeah. It really hasn't rained since the 4th. No, we're we're dry. You know, we've had a few thunderstorms here and there, but but you know, like so, I've been on the West Branch for the last week exclusively, and you know, there are times where you know I'll float through an area, go behind guys, and there's a whole bunch of guys, and I go around the next bend, and I don't see anybody for another two miles, and just and there's fish. You know, it's not like the only there's fish only in certain places. You know, there's fish throughout the whole river. Um, just some places are just easier for guys to get to, or they just know them. They feel more confident there. Or I don't know. I think sometimes someone sees someone else fishing somewhere and figure that must be the spot. You know, so it's almost like, you know, they, they look at other anglers like seagulls, you know, it's like seagulls on the ocean. That's where the fish are. And, yep. uh, you know, I, I, I never understood that, but it seems that like was us today. There was a kid fishing downstream from us water. We had pounded already. He goes out with the dinkiest looking foam bug and pulls out a snakehead. Nice. And I just looked at him like, man, we've been here for nearly three hours and didn't even know there's a snakehead down there. <laughs> That's kind of a, but, a bonus. Yeah, he just walked really. right in. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, we, don't, so, we don't have any snakeheads, fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, how long have those dams been in place? Were they like hydroelectric? No, the rest of the city water supply. So okay. the short story is in the 30s, the mid-30s, New York City dammed the Neversink River, which is a major tributary 
to the Delaware and they dammed the east branch of the Delaware, put two big reservoirs in on two of the bigger tributaries. And when they did that, they reduced the flow in the main river um, and you know it affected the river all the way down below Philadelphia. So the salt line moved up and it got into Philadelphia, contaminated New Jersey's aquifer and wow. the state of New Jersey sued the city of New York. So you have a state suing another municipality or whatever. So it ends up in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court didn't make a ruling per se or pass a law. What they did was they uh, created a decree and they formed um, what's known as the decree party. So it's all the um, states that border the river plus the city of New York, which is not in the basin. So you have the state of Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and the city of New York that make the water management decisions for the river. And they set a minimum flow target to keep the salt line down to where it's supposed to be. And um, any changes to that plan has to be done by all those parties unanimously. So uh, everyone has a veto power. So if Everyone says, hey, let's put some more water in, protect the cold water habitat. And one person says no, one state or city says no, it doesn't happen. So every decision has to be unanimous. So that becomes quite a challenge <laughs> right there. It's not done on two thirds or majority. And in there, there's the Delaware Basin Commission, uh, the Delaware River Basin Commission. And they're, they're kind of the administrative end to carry out what the decree parties say. They don't really make any decision, they just, carry out what the decree parties want to do and so they're kind of a, an administrative thing but you know this there's, there's a lot of complexity the whole thing you know between different committees different issues that come up and you know transparency that exists you know we never even you know know if they're if these decree parties which are technically the governors of each state and the mayor of new york city um if they actually ever sit down and meet together, you know, they all appoint someone to represent them. And then they have these meetings to um, make their decisions, their water management decisions. Um, but it's not a public meeting. You know, you can't go to it. You don't know where it is or if it even exists or if they just do it on telephone or what, what they do. But that's how that's the program. That's how it works. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Now, are they the ones that decide when water's released? Well, no. They they decide what the water release is going to be if in if if it's outside the original Supreme Court ruling, which basically is seventeen hundred and fifty cubic feet per second of water at a gauge in Montague, New Jersey. Okay, which is roughly just south of Port Jervis, New York. Just to give you a picture on the map, that's where Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York all meet. Or it's about 85 miles south of Hancock, New York, right? So that gauge minimum flow has to be 1,750 cubic feet per second. Then 
there was a river master position created. So the river master is the guy who does all the calculations um, saying, okay, the water's dropping. We need so much water released from the reservoir to keep that flow at a minimum. It's going to take, you know, whatever, 50 hours to get here. So New York City, you have to start releasing an extra 211 cubic feet or whatever the number is. So the river master who is with the United States Geological Survey, he's the guy who does the physical calculations and watches what's going on. That's a, that's a lot of red tape oh, with all of that together. Tremendous. Then there, there are times, you know, when we have thermal issues and we petition to get everybody together to give us a little more water for habitat protection and just trying to get everybody together um, to do that is like herding cats, you know, it's who's away, who's on vacation, who can't. So, you know, you have a thermal situation. Um, by the time, frequently, by the time you get everyone to meet and say yay or nay, it's often too late. You know, most times it is too late. You know, it's, it's a day or two too late. Um, the fish start going belly up? No, they don't go belly up. They, they hunker down. They find places to go. You know, there are spring holes. There are some cold water um, tributaries that they can find refuge in. They will move upriver into, you know, they'll follow a cold water plume upriver. Um, seldom is it like a stranding situation that doesn't, you know, that, that it very infrequently, you know, every couple of decades that might happen. That's not something that happens frequently. But it does put them under a lot of stress. And when the water temperatures get up in those 70, 72, 74 degree ranges, sometimes, you know, at night it'll cool down. So the fish are fine. You know, they catch their breath again. And then at, during the day, it pops right back up again. And, you know, people are fishing to those fish. Anything they hook is going to be a dead fish. You know, but, I mean, so no way around that. What species of fish are you targeting? And what do you what is considered a bycatch fish up there? Brown trout. They're all wild browns and wild rainbows. And, and the rainbows have been in the river since before there was the tailwater. They were in the main stem that they got in there by accident, according to the whole story, which seemed which is pretty validated. So they got into the river back in the late 1890s. And once the tailwaters were formed, those those populations of rainbow trout just took right off. You know, they just had that much more habitat. Um, brown trout was stocked by the states, and then um, they stopped stocking once it was shown that there was a, a strong wild population. There's some remnant brook trout here and there it's still around. I mean, historically, it was a brook trout fishery way back before um, land use practices and um, other factors changed the river, you know, physically changed the river, you know, made it shallower and wider and took away a lot of the cover and you know, the brook trout pretty much disappeared in, you know, remnant populations in some of the tributaries. Do the shad make it up, up where you guys are? Yeah, the shad bump into the dams. They get, they really? get all, oh yeah, they get all the way right up onto the dams. You know, especially on the east branch, you get a bigger run that run up the east branch, um, and then a bunch run up the west branch. Yeah, American shad make it all the way up. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it is real cool. Like, like Do you ever get those by accident? Just well, like swinging a fly? And... Sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose. You know, in the, in late May, 
you can have a, a little slowdown in the middle of the day and get great site fish, fishing opportunities for shad. And it's, it's kind of like bone fishing in, 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 uh, in your tactics. And, and it's kind of fun. Um, they'll come up and they'll eat dry flies. I don't know why they can't even swallow them, but they do. They hit dry That's flies. That's crazy. Yeah, it's I've never heard of a shad taking a dry fly. Uh, real common. Real common. Often I'll see somebody hook a shad and they don't realize they hooked the shad. You know, they got pretty good sized shad and the thing is just peeling line off their reel and they think they just hooked the biggest rainbow they ever hooked in their life. But it was a shad. You, you know, <laughs> you see a jump and say, that's a shad. They, you know, that is bizarre. But no, it's, it's, you can target them with dry flies. I mean, it's not, sometimes I've never heard of annoyance. I, I don't know why I've never heard of that till now. I mean, I've been reading about the Delaware since I was a kid. Yeah. No, never they, heard uh, of that. They, you know, when the sulfurs are hatching, that's usually when the, they'll start hitting dries and it's most of them are post spawn, uh, but not all of them. And they'll, uh, for some reason, they like sulfurs. They, they just like uh, yellow bugs. I don't, you know, it just seems that. If you want to catch a shad on a fly, put a sulfur parachute on and you'll catch them. Wow. That might be a bucket list thing right there. Yeah, it's, it's fun. You know, so, it's, it's really fun. I mean, I, a lot of guys don't like doing it. They look at shad almost as a trash fish. And I, I think it's kind of fun. Uh, oh, like, yeah. You know, there's, no, there's no trout feeding. There's nothing going on right now. The trout aren't going to start up for another two hours. Hey, let's let's catch a few shad. You know, it's beats catching chubs. And then when... In the fall here, when the our shad start getting ready to go to the ocean, the stripers and other fish really key in on shad fry, little shad like two inches. Do the the trout? Are you throwing yeah. little shad flies? Yeah, you know, I mean, shad, owl wives, bunker. I mean, they're all in the same family. They're all in the herring family, and and you know, baby shad look like a slightly smaller version of a peanut bunker, really, and. Yeah, they key it on those, and then as you get further down the river, the smallmouth really key in on them in a, in a bigger way. Um, so, how far do you have to go down before it goes, kind of terminates the trout habitat and tur- turns into smallmouth habitat? About twenty-five miles downriver, um, it becomes mostly a smallmouth fishery, and and then as you get fifty miles downriver, it becomes a really, really, really good smallmouth fishery, and um, I mean, just, just, just a lot of them, not, not huge, but there's just a lot of fish. Do people ever do extended day floats where they bring their camping gear and do trout like the first day all the way down. And then the second day would be smallmouth. Um, there's really not too many opportunities to do that. All the land is private. Although the river, the main stem of the Delaware is a wild and scenic recreational river under the national park service. And it's patrolled by the National Park Service. The Park Service only owns a few acres, and that's where their main office is. So all the land, for the, mostly, is all private. Um, there is, on the upper Delaware, on the river, there's only one campground, one private campground you can stay in. And the logistics of doing both really don't exist. The, early in the spring, logistically, you can, you can do a two-day float on, for trout fishing. Um, but not, you know, we got to do a combo of bass and, and trout. Okay. So now speaking of the tailwater that directly influences the insect activity. And this is a, it's a big bug factory, right? Totally. It's, it's, you, you got to look at it is in, in character. It's, you know, yeah, it's a tailwater. Um, and in 
form. It's like a freestone, you know, riffle run pool, riffle run pool. Um, but in the way it fishes and the way the fish behave, it's like a spring creek. So it's like a, you know, it's like a giant spring creek and, and being technical. Um, there, yeah, there's zillions of bugs. I mean, it's every bug that hatches on in east of the Mississippi, we get a hatch of, and some besides that, you know, we get, we get Terranarsis thermophytes and like salmon fly you get out west. We get that bug too, um, and you know, golden stoneflies are, are real good hatch on the East Branch and on the Main River, um, and the hatches last a real long time because they start in different places. So you could fish, let's say, a Hendrickson hatch where it would start usually on the main stem a little bit earlier downriver because it's just a little bit warmer and you know just follow the hatch all the way up river and probably catch it for four weeks in most years if you wanted to um you know if you're if, if you're that type you know i mean you know but once they end and then march brown start you know so why would you why would you leave areas like so now you got march browns oh well <laughs> you know but uh, but if you wanted to you could do that you know green drakes the same thing And what type of gear are you fishing? If you had just like one rod and reel outfit, and is there a specific leader you're throwing? Are these fish spooky? Yeah. What do you need to go out fish the Delaware? They're, they're spooky. In the summer, they're spooky. Or low water, they're really spooky. Um, and sunny days, just like any place else. I mean, they're fish. They're not, you know, they're fish. And they, they're wild fish. And they behave like wild fish do every place. They just have a tremendous amount of food. So they don't have to be opportunists. You know, they, they eat when they want to eat. You know, they, there's food in front of them all the time. So that makes it a little hard. The hatches can be extremely prolific. And, um, you know, let's say a sulfur hatch, for example, you can have so many bugs on the water at once that, you know, your fly could get lost in the mix. So timing and, and, and accuracy become real important. So because of that, I like a fast rod. Um, Five weights fine, and, and and the reason I like a fast rod is because you can be a little more accurate with it than you'd be with a slower rod. So you can have more accuracy, hit your targets, and get a good presentation. Everything's on a reach cast. I mean, very seldom are you going to not throw a reach cast on that river. Um, you know, get your fly leading the way. Don't you know? No influence by by the leader or the fly line. Um, you just let that fly look and behave as most like a real fly as you can. Um, you know, you, you usually don't have to get below 6X. In the in the springtime, 4X, 5X is what you're on. Then you get to a point where you're just mostly 5X, and then now you're on 6X. Um, you know, trichos, you might have to get on 7X because you just start to fish really tiny stuff, and you, you just need that smaller diameter to have less impact on the behavior of the fly. How far are some of these casts? People have to be, it's not like Florida Keys. They, they throw no. in. No, most of the time, most of the time you could, that depends. If you're waiting, you can get closer to fish than you can if you're fishing out of a boat. But sometimes you can't get close to fish waiting because the water's too deep, especially on the main river. So, you, so, but most of the time, if you can cast 30 feet, you, you can, you could be successful. You know, I'd rather see someone who could cast short and well than someone who's long and who knows where it's going. You know, 
you know, the guy who's short and, and accurate and can get a really good drift has got an advantage over someone who can cast 70 feet and not get a good drift. And, and there's so many, so many currents and swirls and, you know, all these little seams that you're crossing at those distances that it's, it's really hard to get a drift um, for about a few feet. So accuracy becomes really more critical. And so if you're not accurate at 70 feet, keep the 70 feet on the reel and just get yourself close or sneak in. And you mentioned boat fishing. How's the access? Are there boat ramps up and down? Yeah, boat access is decent. Um, now, the West Branch has a lot of access for for boats. There's enough access for boats, and there's plenty of weight access, you know, public access. Um, the Upper East Branch, what I call Upper East Branch, is upstream of the Beaver Kill Junction, has a, a, a decent amount of um, foot access. Um, not much boat access. Actually, on the whole East Branch, there really isn't a lot of boat access. Um, and on the main stem, you have every few miles. So you have every... F- the longest stretch you'll go would be 10, 11 miles for boat access on the on the main river. And How long does it take to float that? Oh, it depends on how high the water is. <laughs> if we just had a massive rain and the river's flowing at 30,000 CFS, you're probably doing 20 minutes. But it, it it's really not how long um, your float's really not based on how long or how high the river is. It's you, you pretty much how the fishing is. So some some days and, and you want to fish, you want to float short and fish long. You know, spend more time fishing than floating. And then other times you want to, you know, especially high dirty water, you can float long and, and still fish more, but you fish in difference. A lot of streamer fishing, you know, bank bang and cover the banks and, and cruising along. So it's, it's a little bit different, but you know, more often than not, you're, you're out of the boat fishing just as much as you're in the boat fishing. So on a hot day, that's gotta be real nice. That's great. Jumping in and out. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the water clarity is pretty good. Water clarity is really good. Um, yeah, water clarity for the most part is always good. After rain, you know, it could cloud up or big storms and get chocolate milk, just like anywhere. But under average conditions, no, it's, it's clear. It's clear. It's pristine. And then the seasonality, are you guys fishing all winter, blow the no. tailwater before it freezes? No. It's basically, the part of the West branch that's entirely in New York state, which is roughly half of it closes October 15th. And most of the spawning takes place in that section of the river. So it closes for this, for fish to spawn. That doesn't open again until April. And uh, the East branch closes, part of it closes the same date. And then the lower stretch will close on November 30th and not open again to the spring. Then the border waters between Pennsylvania and New York, they stay open year round, catch and release. Um, but the reality is most years, you get unusual years like we had this year, where it was fishing in March that seldom, that I've never seen that before actually, like, like this year, Hendrickson's were hatching in March. But um, typically it's mid-April um, until the end of October. That would be a typical year. And what do you do to entertain yourself when the river is like is uh, shut down, closed for fishing? I'm fishing the Jersey Shore. I have a, a boat down there too. I I run uh, 
So I'm fishing false albacore and striper run in the fall. And then I'm uh, every other year, it probably averages out in Patagonia hosting trips down there with clients. And then I'm in the Bahamas for five or six weeks doing the same thing. That's pretty sweet. So, so yeah, it's year round, it's full time. I'm, you know, I, on the water, maybe 250 days a year, 260 days a year. And on the Delaware, are there easier stretches than others? Like if, if someone goes into a fly shop and says, hey, I want to go fish, do they send them to you know, like a particular, to one spot just to have all the, the like the rubes go to and, and keep the other places free? Are there like definite uh, you know, easier really, spots to fish? It, it depends on how someone wants to fish. You know, the pools on the main river are really big, you know, so you have huge flat pools and some of them are really deep um, as far as wading goes deep. And then you have riffles and runs. Um, you have some really long riffles that are half a mile, three quarters of a mile long. Um, most, most of the time you're going to put people in those places. You're going to recommend that to them, especially if it's the first time because they'll have an easier time getting a presentation and moving water than they're going to on that flat, smooth water. They won't have to cast as far. And um, they just feel more comfortable. You know, they can break the river down. They'll see seams and they'll see, um, you know, rocks and, you know, little pockets. And, you know, they can not be so intimidated by, this, by the width of the river. that They can break it down into manageable pieces. And you mentioned rocks. What kind of boat are you rowing through there? I'm rowing a drift boat. What, which brand? Fear No Rock. Okay. Yeah, I fear rocks with my stealth craft, so I don't really take it upriver on the Potomac too much. Yeah, and I I've been using the my first two boats weren't clacks. My last five or six have been clacking crafts, and, and you know they hold up well. I mean, you don't want to um, if you're not really skilled in rowing. You know, you don't want to be on the river when it's high, and you don't want to be on the river when it's low. You know, so there's that in between stage. That'd be like Goldilocks. You know, yeah. But it's, uh, and it's also, you know, in the late spring and through the summer, there's a lot of right at dark action that happens. And if you don't know the river, you don't want to try to navigate it and get out in the dark. You know, it's just not a smart thing. But are there fatalities up there? People get, I know somebody down here. I think there were tubers got stuck overnight because they didn't realize how low the water was. Yeah, were no. too much exposed all night. You know, a few years ago, there was a, uh, a teenage kid who, who drowned. They were canoeing, canoeing the river. Uh, I think they were at the summer camp. And then a guy here, you know, there were two different people I heard of in the last few years that they either died in, drowned in the river, they had heart attacks and fell in the water. It was never really known exactly what happened. Um, I saw one boat flip this year, a rental boat with three guys in wow. it. And, you know, I've seen two, actually two guides over the years flip their boats. I can't imagine what it would take to flip a drift boat. But then again, mine's pretty big. Yeah, the we last did have... one I heard flip was a stealth, so. Really? Yeah, when the water was high. It was, yeah. it was on a hairy side, but, you know. Things happen quick, as you know, if you have a drip boat Absolutely. or any boat, any boat, anytime you're on the water, things happen really, really fast, you know, and, 
you know, he's a very experienced guy too. So I'm not faulting anyone there. It's just one of those things that, you know, things happen fast. And fortunately, you know, nobody drowned. Everybody ended up okay. And um, just, you know, using your head and not panicking and having the right safety gear and, you know, get through those situations. You know, they, you know, I saw a boat, well, I saw a boat flip many years ago, maybe 17, 18 years ago. He was in front of me, <clears throat> but he was going sideways down a riffle and, you know, you hit something going sideways. It could, could not end up pretty most of the time. Yeah, some, some scary stuff out there. Well, not really, just... <laughs> yeah, like you said, 17 years ago, and it hasn't happened that much since. No, uh, you know, it's like anything, you just use your head, just don't, just remember to only fish, and only go on fishing, and it's recreation first, and you just be safe about it, you know, it's just like riding a bicycle, or whatever else, you know, people do, you know, you just don't be dumb. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, we just had a kid drown in one of the lakes down the street here about two nights ago. Don't know what happened, but out swimming after dark? Who knows? Yeah, you don't know. Don't I mean, put I know, yourself in those situations. You know, no. And, and on the uh, lower part of the river we call the lower part like 50 miles down river and and then all the way down for you know hundreds of miles um there's a tremendous amount of rafting and tubing and canoeing that goes on and and there it's you know there there are a lot of injuries a lot of people flipping getting hurt people do drown every year you know more than one I imagine there's a lot of booze involved in a lot of those activities yeah a lot of that is uh you know talking to park rangers you know they all seem to say the same thing you know it's usually there's a alcohol mix involved you know and it's usually a male in his early 20s that's invincible yeah we've had um we have what's called the mather gorge here between great falls and georgetown it drops i don't know how much in elevation Uh, we might get two dozen drownings a year in you know like eight to ten miles and a couple of years ago, it was young Marines and young Army guys in the summer that were hot and wanted to jump off a rock. They jumped in and never came up. No, I don't even know if they ever found them. I mean, I think back yeah. when I was in my, my teens and 20s, I mean, I, I did a lot of stuff these people do now to get them in, themselves in trouble, and I just ride it off to sheer luck, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's uh, boys will be boys, you know? I mean, it's I don't know what, how else to put it, but that's what happens and you 
you know, you just, your card wasn't drawn that day or was drawn that day, whatever, you know, but, you know, you just try to minimize the, you know, the things that you do and, you know, just don't be careless about anything. You know, it's like, I, I don't allow guys to drink in my boat. I mean, I, I just, you know, you're out fishing, you're in a beautiful setting. I mean, what more do you need? You know, I mean, if you can't catch a buzz off that, you know, you don't, you don't need to bring a, everyone's got a different tolerance too oh absolutely i mean i, I say i don't allow guys if somebody wants to bring a, a couple of beers for lunch or for the cruise into the launch at night or something fine but you know we're not out there you know Getting on the wasted. Cruise. absolutely right it doesn't happen. that's what i did on father's day we just had the trolling motor out on the lake went around and, and sipped on cold beers pretty fun something i rarely do the first time i ever drank and fished i broke all the toes on my left foot so uh, I learned my lesson. Yeah, that scared straight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, and then, you, miss, you miss too many fish, and you don't you don't perform as well either. Although when you catch something, you know it does. You do think it's a lot bigger than what it really is. <laughs> so speaking of big fish, what are some of the the sizes? Are there any like big historic fish people have pulled out of there? Being yeah, that some I mean, of these fish have been in there so long. Yeah, they're big fish. I mean, average fish is going to be somewhere 14 to 16 inches in that range. Um, lots of 18-inch fish, lots of them. Um, and then a really good number of 20-inch fish. Like we're throwing a 20-inch to 23-inch fish almost every day. And then there are those 25 to 27, 28-inch fish that exist. Um, there are fewer between, you know, the biggest fish I, I know of was 31 inches. I showed two, two 30 inch fish that I know of. I'm sure there've been other ones I've caught. Um, but you know, they're, they're 25 inch fish, you know, that I caught every day, but they're caught enough, you know, that, you know, they're in there and, and not extremely rare. They're just extremely hard to catch. They didn't get that big by being dumb. No, not by being careless, you know. I mean, they beat the eagles and ospreys and mink and mergansers and, uh, you know, everything else trying to eat them and the big fish. And so they're just real, real nervous. And the slightest little thing that happens, they, they're gone. And how's the, I guess, I, I want to lead into Friends of Upper Delaware. Mm -hmm. um, so how's the... I mean, is, is there litter on the river? How's like the environmental, the water quality of it? And like down here, it's just plastic and, and bottles and cans along the entire Potomac. No, we're very, very fortunate that we've had a very um, real good, you know, just group of people that do fish the river. Mostly really good etiquette. People take in, take out what they take in. Um, you know, occasionally you find a piece of litter, just about everyone I know will pick it up. So it's not like there's cans and bottles and no, there's nothing like that at all. You sell. Do you think the deposit in New York also helps that people don't, I mean, like when I fish the salmon river, there's always someone going through the parking lots, picking up every can and bottle around to get money for it. Yeah. No, I, I wonder if we had that down yeah. here, it would reduce litter. No, you don't see, you really don't see that. And most of the people you see, they, they take their water bottles or whatever, they take them off the river and they just throw them in a, in a trash can. They're not even bringing them back for the deposit. Now people are just conscious of it. You know, it is a mostly a fly fishing culture. Um, 
and and people are very conscious of it. The guides on the river, um, all the guides I know, every single one of them will run down a stray bottle that might have blown out of somebody's boat or canoe or something, and and uh, and net it and throw it in their boat, you know, and not just leave it in the river. Um, and even at boat launches, you never see garbage around. It's so so rare. Um, that that happens. Now we have done some river cleanups because there have been a few instances where it's not so much garbage on the banks and in the river, but it's it's just some knucklehead dumped a bunch of garbage off a road that happens to be along you know a high bank of the river, and you know we've had that happen um, after flood events. You have debris that comes out of people's property, you know, off the, out of their yards or whatever. Um, that end up in the river, um, but by and large, it's it's not like we're gonna see garbage. It just you just don't see it. What about agricultural runoff? Do you have like a lot of nitrates coming in, fertilizers? Yeah, we, we do, just like every place in the world. Um, basically, most of that is on the west branch above the reservoir. The upper west branch above the, the Cannonsville Reservoir drains a lot of agricultural land or runs into a lot of agricultural area. So that reservoir does, you know, the water is not as pure as the East Branch Reservoir, which primarily drains the high peaks of the Catskills. So, um, you know, those things, um, yeah, so the West Branch gets more agricultural runoff. You know, the East Branch gets very, very little, if any of it. Um, and then New York City, to protect their own water supply above the reservoirs, is constantly buying up as much land as they can to give themselves a buffer, you know, to keep their reservoirs clean so they don't have to build filtration plants and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, so that that makes a, a difference too. And they've also upgraded, they paid towns to upgrade their water treatment plants to keep, you know, the reservoirs clean. And I think this, that water is the reason why the, the pastries and the bagels and pizza is so good in New York. Well, it's really use different water. They say it's New York City water. That's why there used to be a lot of breweries there. You know, the water was really good. Yeah. Same with bagels and, and pizza. And I don't know. I mean, uh, one of my favorite things when I go into the city is to have a, uh, you know, a hot dog from a hot dog stand and the dirtier the water, the better. So who knows? Dirty water. I try to explain <laughs> dirty water dogs to my wife. She didn't understand them. You know, we did uh, ponies for my daughter's birthday. It's good. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we just had them all in a big crock pot. Mm-hmm. My wife's like, what is that? I'm like, those dirty water dogs. It's like seasoning themselves. That's right. <laughs> all right, so uh, tell us about Friends of Upper Delaware. So Friends of the Upper Delaware, um, we are a the, the flagship or premier um, organization that is fighting to keep better flows of water in the river. That's that's like a primary mission um, to keep the cold water ecosystem intact, to preserve it, to protect it, and to enhance it and to make it better because it can be and get water management um, plans, you know, better. Um, and it, and it's you know it's a slow process, but little by little we're making in, inroads into that. But it's it's kind of like turning the Queen Mary around. You know, you could cut your an oar on your drift boat, spin it right around on a dime. But trying to turn the you know the whole big bureaucracy around, it's like you know the QE two. You know, you need all kinds of tugboats and ropes and lines, and you know it takes 
maybe two miles to turn it around. So it's it's not an easy task, but you know, slowly but surely we're making inroads uh, with the city of New York and gaining some cooperation and getting uh, you know uh, New York and Pennsylvania, who the border the whole cold water fishery, you know, and, and uh, working with us too, and working with them to to enhance the fishery. Um, so you know, we look at the cold water fishery. We're looking at environmental threats to the region that that could pop up. So we we want to you know we keep an eye on that and do what we have to do um, to uh, you know mitigate any kind of or prevent any of those threats. Um, you know, flooding for the local communities is something that you know we we concern ourselves with. So people you know personal property, real estate, and things don't get destroyed and end up in the river. Um, and you know to uh, create a river-based economy for the region. Um, you know, it's really a, you know, economically depressed area. I don't know how else to put it, but it is. And, you know, the uh, river economy can be very strong and, and grow and get even better. So, you know, doing that, doing community programs, uh, uh, teaching kids how to fly fish as an example, tie flies, you know, local kids get them involved. Um, you know, you know, it's an education process. So that's that's what we do. You know, and it, it takes a lot of fuel to do it. So we're always looking for memberships and donations to keep the the uh, you know the fire stoked and uh, building um, a lot of you know partners like Trout Unlimited and you know forming coalitions, being part of coalitions and working with business owners, uh, you know, educating them on what the river has to offer um, for them. You know how it affects their their own economics. So that's that's what we do. And, you know, it's not an easy task, but and it's a lot of stuff for a small little organization. But, you know, using partners too, you know, it kind of um, makes it a, a mountain that we all can climb together, you know, not just one little organization trying to do it on their own. And so we see the booth at uh, Somerset every year. Uh -huh. um, how else do you guys get the word out? And by the way, there's uh, the young lady that was helping out this past year at Somerset looks just like Abby from Flyman Fishing Company. And I got her confused and I said something and she walked right by me and I was like, Abby just totally blew me off. Oh, and then like someone's that. like, young lady with glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She actually lives and then in the city now. She, she's a local girl originally from the area. Yeah. She was outside uh, the bar, and I went into the bar at uh, was it Double Tree or whatever, and I see Abby in there, and I'm like, wait, I just saw you out, and then I realized it was two different people, and I brought Abby out to meet her, and I got a picture of the two of them together, and they look like twins. Yeah, yeah, they they do look really similar. Yeah, so Sarah helps us at Somerset, um, and she helps us at a one bug event we have every year, which is our biggest fundraising event. And she helps us Somerset summer raffle tickets, getting memberships from people. And she's a very pretty girl, and you know a lot of guys have a hard time saying no. So hey, excellent. You know it works. So, so. do you want to tell us more about that one bug event? The one bug is a one fly tournament. Um, we call it the one bug. Basically, very very similar to rule wise to how Jackson Hole one fly works. Um, it is our you know, our major fundraiser. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a two day event pre with, with a, 
one evening tossed in. It's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But Friday evening is a is a big banquet that's open to everyone in an auction, and that you know you could be a uh, you don't have to be a contestant in the tournament to attend that. We sell tickets just to that. People come to that, and then uh, we have a two day tournament. Um, bragging rights you get a little cheesy trophy if you win one of the categories and that's it you know we've gotten really great support corporate wise from industry people which is really nice you know companies like orvis and patagonia and hyde um trying to think who else i know i left somebody out but you know they're probably are you know some one of our you know bigger people you know g loomis um just about just about everyone helps us out but uh you know orvis has been real real strong supporter in Patagonia also. Um, and this year Hyde came in and they've been a help supporting us. We raffled off one of the boats that was a wow. profitable thing for us. Um, so it's, you know, it helps. It helps raise, you know, much needed revenue, you know, that fuels everything. And, you know, we, we got last year, two years ago now, we completed uh, one of the spawning tributaries got trashed in 06 floods, I mean, record floods in 2006. And we completed a spawning habitat project um, on one of the tributary streams that was, you know, it was a huge project, huge, huge project that we rehabilitated that stream and essentially put it back in its original channel, got the floodplain um, backwards, you know, everything working the way it's supposed to. And then very next spring, rainbow trout were up there spawning. So that was really great but it's, you know it's expensive doing these things we have a whole bunch more we want to do and it just takes it takes money to do those things so um you know the one bug helps us you know uh, national fish and wildlife foundation they help us a lot um trout unlimited i mean you know you know they're, they're one of our, our close partners in a lot of stuff that, that we do and work towards so it's um it's you know it's pretty exciting you know it's a pretty good group of people um you know, very, very conscientious, caring people that um, have a love for the river and they, they just want to see that river stay, you know, the way it is and, and you know, the habitat protected. You know, it's, it's good stuff. And where can we find Fudder online? FUDR.org. And you can find mm-hmm. them on Facebook on at Friends of the Upper Delaware River. Fantastic. All right. So if you could sum up for us what if you had like an elevator speech about why the Delaware is such a magical, unique river, uh, what could you tell the listeners? Well, makes uh, specifically it, it, why, why they should come and fish with you specifically, too. Well, what makes it, a, a, you know, unique is that it's, it's a big river system in the East Coast. It's a wild trout fishery. Um, and so you have this really really large river system wild trout in it it's really close to a lot of people um it's it's like a piece of paradise in in this megalopolis you know i mean it's it's close to boston close to philly close to new york city i mean those are those are realistic um driving distances you know people come from europe to fish there Uh, you know i have clients that come over from scotland every year from ireland um to come fish the delaware and um, because they have nothing that exists like that. And, you know, people come up from the South, you know, from the whole East Coast, from out West. Um, you know, we have 
people come to fish our one bug from California and from Washington State. Uh, so, you know, the, the river has a charm and it's, it's a beautiful setting. Uh, you know, it's, if, if you got dropped off in a helicopter and, and you wouldn't have a clue, if you've never seen the river before, you would think you were some someplace not on the East Coast. You wouldn't think you were two and a half hours from Manhattan. Uh, and that's, you know, you know, big, big thing. It was five hours from, from Baltimore and, you know, three hours from Philly, two and a half hours from Manhattan, you know, five, four and a half, five hours from Boston. Um, you know, so it's, it, there's millions and millions and millions of people that, you know, have fallen in love with that river and, and come there for, you know, trout fishing and you know, their escape. Um, so it is, it is, it's a real special place for that reason. Fantastic. Well, I think that sums up this podcast. I don't want to take up too much of your time in the McDonald's parking lot. They might, yeah, they might think you're, you're, yeah, think you're a life. John or something. <laughs> yeah. I did buy a coffee from them, so it's, it's legit. All right. <laughs> yeah. So one more time, where can we find your guiding service and, and where can we follow you on social media? Okay, you can find me at flyfishthedelaware.com. Or my name, Joe DeMalderis, on Facebook, or Fly Fishing the Upper Delaware on Facebook, or Captain Joe D on Twitter. And Fantastic. And you're really good on Twitter. You post a lot of really good conservation information. Well, thanks. I mean, those, those, those are issues that are important to me. And, uh, and I know I post a lot of stupid things, too. So, <laughs> but you're being kind. <laughs> but if, you can, if you can stand my warped sense of humor conservation stuff is good that they get between that guy. absolutely all right so you, are you uh, working on the river tomorrow no actually today and tomorrow and the next day will be the first days off in a row i've had this season it'll be my let's see today was my fourth day off since april so my goodness so, yeah tomorrow get okay, on patching my boat trailer fixing fixing some broken parts and then hopefully uh tuesday wednesday i'm fishing just right well don't waste your valuable time sitting here with me get you to get go have fun i will do that rob nice talking to you thank you so much joe all right take care cheers bye-bye thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.